Welcome to Fly Phenomenon Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hazen, and with me again is Ted Haycraft. Of Cinema Chat. Of, oh, you, you got to get in a plug for your other show. Uh, I guess I should because I'm, I may be uh, maybe resurrecting it here next the week or so. Oh, because yeah. of uh, COVID. Because the theaters are opening back up. And okay. you're braving going to a theater. I may, I may have to do that. See a few films. I, you know. So. What, what do you plan on seeing? Uh, well, you know, to keep my streak of uh, silly superhero films, I guess I go see the New Mutants. Uh, kind of curious to see. You know, I heard someone compare that movie the other day to Nightmare on Elm Street Three. Oh, really? And I was like, well, that makes sense. Okay. Which I haven't seen that Nightmare on the Street three. So. The Dream Warriors. Like, oh, really? I think that's the one Randy Harlan directed. <laughs> okay. So I make I make I make uh, posts about this. You're cool going to a theater? Yes and no. I mean, I I I have to give uh, you know like our at our station, they're doing everything they can to keep it clean and and safe. And I see the you know everybody uh, works at doing that from top to bottom. So I'm hoping. The staff and I, the management. I, 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 I get know. that. My caveat is I want to use the online booking to see how crowded the theater is. And if it's empty, and I keep having this vibe that I'm going to end up going at the very last show of the day where it's probably the least clean the theater is going to be. And that, that worries me. Mm-hmm. But, but I mean, I, I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm also willing to not go. Like, I, I don't want to be spoiled on Tenet, but at the same time, it's, I, it's, it still strikes me as weird we're going back. True, but then again, you know, uh, it's also keep in mind that it seems like a lot of times when I'm at the theater, I'm the only one in the auditorium anyway. Yeah, so it may be, you know, any uh, much of a difference in some ways. So we should get to uh, today's guest, uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum, esteemed film critic and author. He's one. Of, I mean, he's, he's, one of, a, he's one of my heroes. I mean, I I, uh, I have a whole pantheon of cr- film critics that are go tos, and he's been doing this for quite a while. And uh, he's met some of the really he's uh, yeah met people like Tate and Wells in his in his career and it was really fun talking to him because one of the things I started realizing halfway through is how much you know I, re- I started reading him in high school and how much of a especially my love of Orson Wells comes from some of his writing oh yeah yeah I, I mean I, I didn't put two and two together until we were we were talking today the other funny thing was um, all all day as we've been leaving leading up to this. I just, he's such a great, he's a great Francophile. He loves French cinema. He lived in Paris for a long time, but he's also just a great um, ambassador of world cinema. And it just brought to me like how much as a viewer I am not. Well, yeah, but it's, it's, you know, you got to really work at that. uh... He he speaks late in in our interview about how that, and he kind of downplays it, but he says something really, that I really liked about that's, you know, the window into the world it's funny I, I almost threw the um the ebert empathy quote but he uh he was a contemporary of uh, roger ebert's and probably and they they probably they're friendly i assume but they also probably wrote some uh contentious stuff against each other too at some points yeah he shows up in the he has some interesting sound bites in the uh, roger ebert documentary mm, yeah but that's not the full sum of Jonathan Rosenbaum's career. No, there's a lot of interesting things, uh, and I hopefully you'll... Uh, this is the film critic that Jean-Luc Godard said was probably one of his favorite working film critics at one point. Yep. So, anyway, onwards with Jonathan Rosenbaum. So I guess let's just go ahead and dive in. I mentioned in our email that 
Placing movies was kind of an influence for the interview portion of this podcast just because the idea of making a person's biography via the movies in their lives seemed very appealing to people like me and Ted, ourselves. I mean, what caused you to want to write that? Well, it was basically, I mean, you know, of course, Placing Movies was basically designed as a companion volume to moving places. So they're, they're both autobiographical in different ways. I don't know quite what else to say about it, but I mean... <laughs> well, let's go ahead into the biography. So your grandfather opened up a series of, of theaters in Arkansas, right? This would have been at the advent of... Alabama. Okay, I thought he started in Arkansas and then you guys moved to Alabama later. Well, he was... That's right. He was in Arkansas before... I, that was before I was born. I mean, back in the 20s. Okay. Uh, but then he moved from Little, from North Little Rock to Alabama in the 20s. And... Uh, I think it was in the 20s or maybe it was in the little before the 20s. You know, like I think I know my father remembers going to see Intolerance in North Little Rock. So oh, <laughs> that helps to date it. Does he have a story from seeing it? Was it that's got to be I'm a sorry? that's got to be a very loaded movie to see in Little Rock in the 20s. Well, I guess. But I mean, he was just a kid. My father would have been just eight years old at the time or something like that. Mm -hmm. So. My father was born in 1910. Anyway, and I was born in 1943, so that was a bit later. And um, and actually, I have one of my younger brothers has actually moved back and to the town I grew up in and is living there now in Florence. You guys had you lived in a house that was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. That's right, and in fact, it's become a museum now that's owned by the city. And a very good friend of mine who I co-authored a book with named Murnau Said Vafa, an Iranian professor and writer and filmmaker, she uh, made a film about the house and about my family, feature length, called A House Is Not A Home, Right or Wrong, which, which actually fairly recently, I mean, it was a film that basically was just completed earlier and shown first earlier this year. Just completed. So is, I mean, is it in the limbo right now of the COVID? When is this going to come out type scenario? Well, it's, it does have a distributor and it's already shown and, you know, it's already had some public screenings. It's already shown twice in Chicago and it showed and uh, we recently showed it online for about 100 architects, which was a very interesting experience. And I showed it once in London and I showed it once in Zagreb in Croatia uh, earlier this year. So it's it's slowly making the rounds. I mean, you know, but it's um, but but as I say, she has a distributor now, and I think you know it's it's available for people who might want to might want to book it. You know, it's like it's but it's it's about seventy minutes long, feature length. Okay, it's available. Um, so the theater that your your father took over, but your grandfather owned in Alabama, that was named the Majestic. Well, no, my father basically was, became, you know, went to work for his father until the theaters were sold, which was around 1960 when I was in, still in high school. And at that point, my father became a professor at the local university for the remainder of his career. This was in English and American literature? That's what he taught, yeah. So were you guys, was, was it a house that was filled with books and, and put reading as, as a top priority? Well, it is. It it still has a lot of books in it, but it's you know it's like it's there for decor. It's kind of weird because a lot of the books that I had as a teenager 
are still in the house. <laughs> that kind of like went with the deal, you know. So it's like uh, I've probably either gotten replacements for those books or. There's got to be a few you still want to steal somehow. But it's, there was one that I actually asked to be able to intercept, and they let me take one, one book back. But what they was said the book? This, you know, um, a science fiction book that I, I can't remember the name of it. I, I, science fiction anthology that I liked a lot as a kid. So what, your parents, were they, were they big into movies then? They were not. I was really the only real cinephile in the family, except for my grandfather in a way enjoyed movies a lot. My father was sort of like, they weren't really cinephiles. It was just something that he had to do because it was to make a living. And, you know, it's like we grew up seeing a lot of movies because it was the family business. But I'm the only one it kind of like stuck with as a kind of, you know, something more than just a kind of light entertainment. Were the movies I was showing during this time just like first run movies during the 50s? Oh, sure. Yeah. And I saw practically everything that came from the Hollywood studios. But this this was a would you call this a mom and pop theater chain, uh, an independent chain? Uh, well, it was actually it they were actually sued by the government for being a kind of monopoly because they actually they had nine theaters in four cities in north in that part of Alabama. And there were a couple of competitors, but but it was sort of like they tended to monopolize a bit. And they also had a partnership for a while with a company in Nashville, a family called the Sudicums. But so so I would I don't know. I think it was sort of like they were forced to become independent because they lost the the, the government lawsuit. And so in fact, during the latter years of the business, they actually showed more independent films and even more art films in that period uh, because that is what independent theaters did right. in that time. That, so I was able to, you know, they were showing, you know, some foreign, some neorealist films and things like that, you know. Well, that wasn't my question because I was wondering if he, uh, if he was showing those foreign films at that time because uh, you always hear about the theaters owned by the studios. They just show their own product for the most part, whereas the independents would go out of their way to get bringing foreign films and more stuff off the beaten path. Um, well, they were they were they showed a few, but I mean, you know, it's sort of like I, I wouldn't say I grew up seeing lots of you know foreign films, but I did see some, including things like The Bicycle Thief and a few you know and a few others. How old would you would have been when you saw Bicycle Thief? There was I I wanted to see it on a family trip to New York when I was seven years old. But it was because nineteen fifty. But but it was too expensive for the you know the ticket prices for kids. So we went to see Destination Moon instead. And I was because <laughs> I wanted to see Bicycle Thief. But then I think it played. I think it, if I remember correctly, it eventually showed it at the family theater, maybe a year or two later when I was you know maybe eight years old that's or pretty, something that's, like. That's pretty amazing because most kids would want to see Destination Moon. And not bicycle yeah. thief, and here you want to see bicycle thief. But you're well, that was just because the plot was described to me, and it seemed to be like I was very moved by the description of the plot by my father. It involved children somehow, and children in peril. Yeah, right. So, what were other big highlights for you as movie highlights? How often? Okay, how often were you seeing films? Are we, are we talking daily? One, two a week, one a week, less? I, there were three movie theaters in town when I was very young. 
And so I couldn't have seen everything, but I saw an awful lot. I saw, you know, almost most things, at least of the new films. So I went on a regular basis. It was kind of like my, it wasn't so much that I was encouraged by my parents, but it was like a babysitter for them, you know, for me to go to the movies. So when I get out of school, I'd go directly to the movie theater. Do you remember your very first movie? No, but it was probably a dis one of the Disney films, you know. It might have been Dumbo, might have been Song of the South. I'm not sure which one. Did you have any movies? I mean, for someone with a taste that for Bicycle Thieves at seven, it seems like you're already into something more sophisticated a little early. But when you're teenage years... Not necessarily, no. My favorite movie when I was very young was Annie Get Your Gun. <laughs> and that was also 1950, you know, the, mus the musical with Betty Hutton. When puberty hit, what movies were you getting interested in? Oh, I don't know. East of Eden was a kind of a film I, I related to a lot more than Rebel Without a Cause. Although, I, you know, I saw both. But yeah, I mean, I was responding a lot to Ilya Kazan movies as a teenager. You know, like Facing the Crowd had a big impact on me. I only really discovered Orson Welles later after I went away to school and I saw Citizen Kane when I was about 17 or something. I was going to ask what was yeah. your first Orson Welles movie, so where did you see it? Do you remember? The first Orson Welles movie was probably either Othello on TV, which had a big impact, or Touch of Evil, which was playing at the Competitors Theater, but which didn't mean much to me at the time. To me, it was just a thriller. You know, I didn't. It didn't. It didn't have any special meaning or impact for me then. So when you went to college, this was you went initially to college. You had plans to be write novels at that point, or just literature. I wrote my first novel when I was in still a, a senior in high school at a, at a boarding school in Vermont, actually. And I started, you know, to get interested in film as an art form during around the same time when I went away to school, because that was the beginnings of, you know, things like the new wave and so on. You know, where I saw movies like Shadows and Breathless and 400 Blows, Shoot the Piano Player, you know, things like that on Hiroshima Mon Amour. And I would see those like in New York, usually on my way up to school or, or on spring break or on Christmas break, or, you know, I had grandparents in New York City. My mother was from, was a New Yorker originally, some from New York. So I had relatives in New York. And it was because of, you know, seeing a lot of the films, a lot of it from the new way at that time that really got me interested in film as an art form, I would say. Do you remember the theater you were seeing these movies in, in New York? Oh, I don't know. There was one on... Uh, Gosh, there was a theater on Eighth Street where I saw last where I saw La Ventura. I saw last year at Marienbad at the Carnegie Hall Cinema. I saw a lot of films at the Bleecker Street Cinema. I went to a lot of films at the New Yorker Theater, which was on 88th and Broadway. I also went to a lot of films at a theater that existed then called the Charles, which was on around. Oh, I can't remember, it was 10th or 12th Street and uh, Avenue B, I think, or something like that. Okay. I had to walk east. Because I lived in, the, I was, I started college at, at New York University. And so I was basically living on the West Village and sometimes walking to the East Village to go to the Charles. See, on Wikipedia it has you going to Bard, but you went to NYU first or you, you just exclusively? Yeah, for the first three semesters. And I basically was a bit alienated by NYU because I much prefer the idea of a community sort of college. So I transferred to Bard and really Bard was wonderful. It was, I would say, just about the only part of my education that I really liked. I liked so much that I spent 
you know, I wound up spending five years as an undergraduate. I spent an extra semester because, you know, I didn't, in terms of transferring credit, so I spent five years as an undergraduate. Did you learn French in high school or in college, or where did you first learn French? I started taking French in high school and didn't do very well. <laughs> Tried in college, didn't do very well. Even when I went moved to Paris, I've never learned French very well. It's a kind of disability, I'm sorry to say. Um, You've translated books and you still have trouble with... I translated one book, but I did get an awful lot of help on it. Mm. And, you know, and I put in a lot of extra time. And I was lucky enough in London when I was translating this book by Andre Bazan, Orson Welles, to be sharing an apartment with Tom Milne, who was an excellent translator, who went over everything I did and corrected it and, you know, improved it and everything. So... I did do some translation with great difficulty, but I would say I was better at, you know, sort of like reading French than I've always been in speaking French. That makes sense. So wait, when, when did you go over to France? Uh, the first time I went was when I was in graduate school, which would have been around 66, I guess, or something like that. So you were in Paris in 68? I wasn't there in May 68, but I arrived in June 68. Okay. So there was still tear gas. They were basically repaving some of the streets where they dug up the cobblestones. And, you know, there was still a lot going on that summer. And that was when I decided I wanted to move to Paris. And I moved to Paris in the fall of 69 after spending the summer there in 68. This would have been after grad school? Yeah, I quit graduate school. Basically, I stayed in graduate school until I was old enough for, for whatever reason because I was from Alabama, there were a lot of people enlisting. I knew I wouldn't be drafted. So I was draft dodging, you know, for the last part when I was in graduate school. Bravo and then to when you. I knew I wasn't going to be drafted. I moved. I quit graduate school and moved to Paris. I guess where exactly did the film writing in, in France start to come into play? When did, where did you first start writing for film magazines and, and once you were in France? Even before I moved to Paris, I edited a anthology of film criticism that for various complicated reasons never came out, although it twice made its way into galley proof. So, I mean, you know, I did a lot of work and it's how I got involved in film criticism because I met a lot of critics while editing the book and, you know, I met a lot of people in early travels, you know, like I met the people at Sight and Sound, for example, when I went to London for the was probably the first time. So. Early on, after I moved to Paris, I contacted the people at Film Comment asking if they wanted a Paris correspondent. And they said, well, try writing something for us and we'll see if we like it. And they liked it so starting in about 71, you know, two years after I moved. Was this I started writing for Film Comment. And around 72 or 73, I started writing for Sight and Sound also. Was the Film Comment the, the Raising Cane essay? I think the first thing I wrote for them was a was a Paris journal. And then the second thing was, yeah, my, although maybe it was the first that I wrote, my attack on Raising Cain. Did you get hooked up with the Cahiers du Cinema crowd when you were over in Paris? Not really. I mean, I, I'm trying to think who I might have known. I actually knew one person who, who was actually affiliated later with the Cahiers. The first time I ever went to Paris, I met somebody named Bernard Eisenschitz, who I still know, who's a major historian. He wrote a book that's in English about Nicholas Ray, you know, the a very detailed biography of Nicholas Ray. So he was connected, but at the time, 
I think at a certain point towards the end of my stay in Paris, I started to know some of the writers there. And I also got to know, after during the time I was in Paris, the editor of Positive, Michel Simon. Oh, okay. So I, I gradually, but you know, during the first two or three years I was in Paris, I was very isolated and didn't know people very much. And in fact, almost all the people I knew were not French people, but other foreigners. I mean, Americans, English, people from Latin America, actually Cubans and Argentinians. Those were the people who were my friends, basically, during most of the time I was in Paris. When you were- now I have a lot of friends there, more friends than I did then, and including a lot of several French people, but I didn't back then. During this isolated time, what movies were you seeing in Paris? Oh, God, all sorts of things. I mean, you know, it was it was in Paris that I discovered Playtime. I don't know. I went. I, I also rediscovered American cinema, including films that I'd seen when I was younger, but which I kind of like was very much influenced by French criticism. So I kind of big, had a kind of critical discovery of people like Howard Hawks and Samuel Fuller and, you know, the kind of people I'd already started coming interested in in the United States through by reading Andrew Saris and so on. You know, Nicholas Ray, people like that. Speaking of Playtime, how did you get hooked up with uh, Jacques Tati? Let's see. Well, I was a big... Playtime was, you know, like became my favorite film. And my mother happened to find out that an assistant to Tati came from Birmingham, actually, grew up in Birmingham, (laughs) who was French-American. And so she got me in touch with her, and through her I was able to set up an interview with Tati. And I hit it off well with Tati when I interviewed him, and I also became friends with his assistant who hired me to even write the sort of voiceover for a documentary that she'd made. So basically, because of being hitting it off well with Tati and also becoming friends with her, I wound up getting invited maybe a couple of months later to be his what was called his script consultant, which was really just being his audience. <laughs> yeah, because he, he, he liked to bounce his ideas off of other people. So. And I did that for not a real long time, but it was a wonderful experience. And I got even, I was even paid a salary for it. It was for a week or two, basically. Okay. On Wikipedia, it has you mentioned as a extra in a Brisson movie. That's right. During the same period, in fact, practically the first piece I ever wrote about film it's not a very good piece, but it's on my website, is a piece that I wrote for The Village Voice about being an extra on Four Nights of a Dreamer, called Two Nights of an Extra. <laughs> and it was just because I, when I was going to, to Cinematheque one night, I was actually watching Otto Preminger's Advice and Consent. And as I was leaving the theater, somebody came up to me and said, would you like to be an extra in a Bresson film? And I said, sure. <laughs> and they were shooting a few blocks away. So I went immediately, I went there and was there for several hours. And then I became friends with an assistant on the film, an Indian woman actually, and she told me about where they were shooting the next night, which was the last night of shooting. So it was the last two nights of shooting I was around for. Was that one of your first productions you'd ever seen, ever been around? Um, in any, one that I was around for, very long, for, for any length of time, yeah, probably. And what was really funny is that most of the extras didn't even know who Bresson was or that he was directing the film. They thought his wife, who was the assistant director, was the one who was directing, you know. And a lot of people on the crew didn't even have a sense of who Bresson was. It was really strange. Some of them knew, but but, but some of them didn't. 
the stereotype I would have of being an extra on a Brisson movie would be a statue times 10. What was it like? Well, it was, you know, I hadn't been at that point an extra on any other film, so I didn't have anything to compare it to. Fair enough. But I mean, you know, Bresson's form of direction would say, you'd say, who loved more? Well, you know, walk more slowly, he would say to people. And then there was one person who walked fast. He said, oh, you like to walk fast. Okay, you walk fast. So I mean, it's fairly, you know, straightforward stuff. It's, it's just funny because I've worked for multiple directors who have cited Brisson, mainly because of the book he'd written, but... I did want to uh, come back to, you were writing for Film Comment, Sight and Sound, and Village Voice in the 70s. Is that, that's correct, right? That's right. I was also reviewing books for the Village Voice. I reviewed uh, Thomas Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow for the Village Voice wow. during that period, too. You wrote the Gravity's Rainbow review for the Village Voice. That's got to be a very poured-over review. <laughs> Well, it was the thing is, I had already been a fan of his two earlier novels when I was back in the States, you know. So I had asked to review it, and I was, and at the time he wasn't famous enough for or whatever, you know. I was the first person who asked, and so I got the assignment. It was a very difficult review, thing, book to review, and I spent a long time on it. <laughs> I ever wrote for Sight and Sound was a review of Godard's collected criticism, actually which was very challenging also, which had been translated by Tom Mill, who later became my flatmate when I lived in London. I guess I, I, I wanted to know what it was like, because I know people in my generation think in a Pollyannish terms about film culture in the 70s, late 60s, it being, for lack of a better term, water cooler. It, it, was, it was essential to, to the culture at the time and in ways that it just isn't anymore. No, but I think people tend to glamorize it in ways that are sometimes not justifiable because they kept thinking, okay, it was great in the 60s and 70s, you know, all these good, great Godard films were opening. But, you know, in the States, they were all, and in fact, in France, largely too, they were closing within a few days, you know, and they were attacked by most of the critics. And it wasn't like, I don't know, you see, I think film going was social then in a different way from the way it's social now but I think it's just as social now it's just that people are more social on the internet now and through things like this podcast and through websites and through email and through Facebook and all of this you know so you know I actually have a website that in which I get about a thousand people that visits every day hmm. and that becomes very social because even though I don't have people can't post on it I do get lots of reactions and feedback, you know, like on Facebook and so on. So, but I don't see films at the same time and in the same places as other people. So it's social in a different way. But for me, it's just as social. And in fact, in some ways, it's even better because when I was seeing a lot of these great films like in New York and Paris, sometimes weeks would go by or even months before I'd run into somebody else who'd seen the same films. <laughs> Whereas now you can go to the, on the Internet right away and interact with people about it and discuss it. So I think even though there were a lot of exciting films that were coming out in the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of arguing about them. It wasn't like everybody was in agreement about things then. Just as many people hated Godard then, and, or even more people hated Godard then than hate him now. More people don't even know who Godard is, probably, today. But I'm, I'm thinking about the new wave a lot because I'm getting ready to teach a course in Agnes Varda in a few days in Chicago online. 
the first time I'll be teaching online. They got that new box set coming out, right? Oh, it's already out. Oh, it's already out. The Criterion box set out. That's a that's a fair point. I guess in my head, the romanticism comes from something really basic of legacy media and people arguing legacy media. And when I look at the archives, I see that. But I can see how that's really trite and meaningless compared to the community on the internet. And so, no. I just... Well, the thing is, younger people can actually. I on a regular basis run across or meet online or even in person people in their twenties who know more about film than I possibly could have known at that age even though I was living in New York and Paris and London. So it seems to me that there's a kind of like possibilities now for film goers that didn't exist back in the 60s and 70s. You'd wait for a film to turn up and then if it, you know, and of course Paris, a lot major reason why I moved to Paris was because I like to see films and I could see more films there. But even so, it was sort of like you didn't own films and you didn't have them at home the way you do now, where you could access them whenever you like wanted to. So it was a different kind of culture for that reason. So you sound you sound pretty positive about the landscape today when you hear, you know, because uh, it seems like old school film fans or old school critics where, you know, they're kind of poo-pooing it and, and, and theater going is going, you know, not the way it used to be. And, and nobody knows the sense of history, but you seem to be very proactive and positive about what's going on right now. I know, but I'm different from most of the people my own age. I mean, most of the people I know who are contemporaries of mine tend to be very negative about it. But I feel like I'm a beneficiary of the of the current culture because of my website, because, in other words, I owe a lot to the Internet. Well, I love, and I love your... Uh, I, one of my favorite things is the, the, your column in Cinemascope. It's a must-read, and it really helps me out to find some obscure stuff, and I, then I can get it. You know, it's, uh, it's amazing, because I'm 15 years younger than you, and I still can remember, you know, if you didn't see a film or you didn't have a campus nearby, you may not see that film forever or once a year if you're lucky. And now yeah. it's it's all here in our fingertips. You turned me on to the getting that disc of Sternberg's first film, von Sternberg, Joseph von Sternberg. Oh, oh the Salvation Hunters. Yeah, yeah. that's a fantastic disc. And I, and I can't believe we actually had access to that now. Well, of course, there's still an awful lot of Americans who don't even know that to get sort of European discs, you need to have a multi-regional, all of that kind of stuff. I have friends who are very sophisticated about film, but still haven't figured out that it's worth having a multi-regional DVD player. Right, right. The reason why I started doing that column partly was in order to get a lot of free DVD. <laughs> of course, but it's great because it really does. It's very beneficial for us fans out here. I, 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 I can attest to it. I just got in the mail recently a couple of things I really love. One is a double disc set that has two of my two favorite Albert Lewin films, Pandora and the Flying Dutchman and The Living Idol. Uh, the and The disc. Living Idol doesn't have much of a reputation. But in fact, when I was in Paris, a Cuban friend of mine, Carlos Clarence, who had been very adopted by Henri Langlois, told me that Henri Langlois' favorite film was The Living Idol, the last film of Albert Lewin. Wow, okay. Which kind of blew my mind because I mean, even people who like Lewin, don't, most of them don't like this film. It's a very strange film, shot in Mexico City. And it's shot largely on the campus of the University of Mexico City, which is the largest university in the world, by the way. It has the largest campus, at least, I think. This, this double disc, it was a foreign, it's a foreign release or an American release? No, it's American, Cone oh. Brother. It's Cone Brothers. Oh, Cohen, okay, Cone Media, okay. Yeah, Cone Media, right. And I also got, well, a film that I'm, I'm sort of curious to see now. I didn't like it so much when it came out because he wasn't 
you know, like an approved auteur. But Joseph Strick's movie of The Balcony, I'm very curious about. The Jean Genet play. Okay. It's a to that with Shelley Winters and Lee Grant and Peter Falk. So I don't know. It's I'm very curious to see it again in black and white scope, actually. Cool. <laughs> so uh, when did you move to London? I moved to London. What basically happened was when I moved to Paris, I was living on an inheritance from my grandfather. And the money that I inherited, which, you know, also paid for my education, it kind of ran out halfway through my stay in Paris. And so I was finding it harder and harder to make a living. I was getting what other jobs I could, which included some things like script translation, because I was doing it, you know, with great difficulty, but I was getting whatever jobs I could get, but there weren't that many. But at the same time, there was a job that I was offered as assistant editor at Monthly Film Bulletin put out by the British Film Institute, which also published Sight and Sound. So that was a steady income. So even though I preferred Paris to London and still do, actually, I couldn't turn down a job like that. So I I moved to London and it was actually in uh, 1974 after five years. And I stayed in London for two and a half years. So did you become more involved with Sight and Sound at that point, or is this strictly just the well, other? Well, I had been involved with, you know, I'd been writing a lot for Sight and Sound, but, but but once I got the job, I was actually on the editorial board of Sight and Sound as assistant editor of Monthly Film Bulletin. So I was about working on both magazines. When did the uh, opportunity to go to San Diego to teach at the University of California? This well, is- I was starting to, what happened was I was starting to feel homesick for the States. And also, I I still had kind of like some literary ambitions as a writer. And somehow I felt I was losing contact with American speech. And, you know, so I was thinking, maybe I can get a job teaching film in the States. So I started sending off a few letters to a few people, including Manny Farber, who I dealt with briefly, because even though I hadn't met him face to face, we'd had some phone conversations because of that anthology I edited, which never came out. Mm. And then to my amazement, he wrote me back, offering me a job replacing him while he was taking off on a Guggenheim grant. So it was only a job for two quarters. And so it was a big risk because I was moving everything there and I didn't have any guarantee of a future job after that. But I thought, hey, I can't do better than replacing Manny Farber. (laughs) So I I moved all my stuff and and as it turned out, I wasn't rehired. I I, I went over very badly with his students, (laughs) partly because I hadn't had hardly any experience teaching then, but also his style of teaching was not something I was accustomed to doing. What were you teaching? Well, he was basically giving large lecture courses, which were almost like improvised jazz solos. I mean, they were (laughs) improvised and they were very, they were very interesting, but it just wasn't kind of like something I was used to doing. And also I was kind of like expected almost in a weird sort of way to be, well, I don't know if you could say to be an imitation Manny Farber. I don't think he literally wanted necessarily, but I found that when I was teaching a criticism seminar, that all the students were trying to imitate him in writing, which was disastrous, you know, because he's a terrible person to try to imitate, even though I think he's the greatest American film critic. So as it turned out, after two semesters, I wasn't rehired, 
But luckily, I applied for an art history grant from the National Endowment of the Arts, was giving art history grants in film. And so I got a $5,000 grant, which enabled me to start work on Moving Places, my first book. Did you apply as a film writer, or did you apply with the project of the book specifically? Well, at the time that I applied, I thought it was going to be a nonfiction book about my family's theater business, but I didn't really think about it anymore because I didn't even think I was going to necessarily get it. And then when I got it, suddenly a more radical book kind of came together in my head. So I, I wrote the first part of it when I was still in Del Mar, a suburb of San Diego. Then I moved to New York for a year. Then I moved from New York to Hoboken, where I was living with a film professor who was finishing her dissertation at the time, uh, named Sandy Flitterman, who now Sandy Flitterman Lewis, who teaches at Rutgers. So eventually it worked out for me, but I, I had about 10 years in the wilderness, because even though I had that grant, and years later I got a Guggenheim grant, but that was many years later, and for about 10 years I was having a rough time basically supporting myself as a freelancer, and I couldn't get even year-long contracts. I could only get sort of like be hired on a semester-by-semester semester basis at NYU, then at School of Visual Arts, then later at Berkeley for one semester, then, then I went to San and Barbara for four years and all of that was having difficulty supporting myself until I got hired by the Chicago Reader. And so freelance gigs were just kind of hit or miss in that period of time? Writing one? Well, I was, yeah, I was writing freelance pieces when I could, but basically, as I say, it was like, it was frustrating because the people who were deciding whether I'd be hired or not hired were people who knew less about film than I did, by and large. And they were, they were people, even today, I don't take seriously as film people, but they were also decided I didn't have the right degrees, I couldn't have any job security. And then I was actually approached about teaching at the Chicago Reader. I mean, actually, the last year, I think I was in Santa Barbara. I had a year-long contract. And around that time, I was approached about working for the Chicago Reader, and I said, could you offer me a year's contract? And they said no. So I said, well, why don't you come back to me in another year and see if, if you're still looking for somebody? And so they were still looking a year later, and I applied and got it, all thanks to Dave Kerr, who recommended me as his replacement when he left the Chicago Reader. I don't exactly want to completely leave the academic writing behind just because one of the things I found that has been noted about your writing is this bridge between kind of daily film criticism and academia. You kind of, your, your, your style kind of bridges the gap between the two. Do you think that's fair? Yes, yes. And I, I mean, I think I'm, I'm probably unusual in the sense that most of my, let's say, journalistic colleagues don't keep up with academic, film academia. And I did try to keep up to a point. And also I have friends. One of my best friends is Jim Naramore, who is one of my favorite academic film critic. Yeah, he's a teacher at IU. Oh. And one of, the, one of the most, what would you say, one of the better Wells books? That's, uh, the best. The, I think the best. best that you wish. Also, the best book on, he's written the best book on film noir. He's written the best book on Stanley Kubrick. And the best book I know on film acting, all of those. Yeah, he came down to talk. I went to uh, University of Evansville, and they actually had him come down and talk. And uh, I had the that one, I don't know what that one journal was, but it was all dedicated to Wells, and they had a Nairmore article in it. And he was really surprised and impressed that I knew who he was, and I said, could you sign this? And I was all excited, because I've been flirting with film criticism since I was in grade school off and on. And so I was very aware of his name and, and some of his credentials at the time. And, uh, but yeah, it's, but we, we were trying to, uh, we were discussing this earlier about how, 
you know, you seem to be um, really in that little slipstream between, you know, the the day, the weekly consumer report type stuff, and then the and the academic stuff, where you see the bridge the gap, a really nice little valley there. Well, I think a lot of my career could be described as trying to sort of fill in gaps because I mean, you know, I started out wanting to be a novelist and short a fiction writer. And so I and I studied literature. So there's ways in which I'm sort of like trying to combine my literary background with my film background. And then also the fact that I came from Alabama and then I wound up spending eight years in Europe. There are different things that are kind of isolated from each other in my life. And so my writing is an attempt to bring them all together in different ways, I guess. That's a point that actually Jim Nairmore made when he wrote about me in his collection of his film pieces, An Invention Without a Future. Uh, by the way, he's writing a book now about Cary Grant, which oh. should be really interesting. Let's backtrack for a second. I want to know where and when, I just want to ask you on a personal level, the, the, yeah. your uh, meeting with Orson Welles. Actually, that was that my was next when, question. That was when I was in Paris. How'd that come and, and in fact, it was early on because what happened was a person I mentioned earlier was a friend, Carlos Clarence, a Cuban, happened to have a script of Heart of Darkness, his, which was Wells' first film script, you know, which was the film he wanted to make before Citizen Kane at RKO. And I was writing a, a lengthy piece about it for Film Comet. And someone said, you know, you want to ask Wells about it. And I said, well, he, he's not going to want me to, I wouldn't be able to interview him. And he said, why don't you try? So I found out that he had a secretary in London. So I called his secretary in London and she gave me the address of a film studio, of a uh, editing studio where he was editing what what turned out was Effort Fake oh, before wow. it was called Effort Fake. And they said, why don't you write him a letter there, but don't call him up. He's busy. Don't pester him. So I wrote him a letter. And it was towards the end of my work on the article, actually. I thought the article was practically all done, but I thought, well, why don't I write them anyway? And I wrote a fairly modest letter, although I didn't mention in passing in it that I had written an attack on Pauline Kelsa <laughs> and asking him a few questions about the casting and so on. And amazing thing, this is a tribute to the French postal system. I mailed the letter to him on a Saturday afternoon. And then because I didn't think I was gonna get an answer, I stayed up all night, Sunday night, writing, finishing a whole draft of the article and didn't get to sleep until seven o'clock in the morning. So I went to sleep at seven o'clock. Two hours later, the phone wakes me up and someone said, this is an assistant of Orson Welles. Mr. Welles was wondering if you'd like to have lunch with him today. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and the place that he proposed meeting me for lunch was walking distance from where I lived, which was at a restaurant that actually you see in FFA called Mediterranean, a great seafood restaurant in the left bank. So very sleep deprived, three hours later, because it was at noon, I went, I met Wells for lunch. I didn't bring a tape recorder because I was so afraid I was gonna be so nervous that I was, I was bound to spill my wine or something. So I did just I didn't trust myself around a tape recorder. So I met it. That's how I met him. And the first thing I said to him was that I was amazed that he had invited me to lunch. And he said, "Well, I don't have time to answer your letter." <laughs> that was his explanation. So was he uh, any, everything and anything? Everything that we kind of perceive him to be when you met him? Or well, I, I'll tell you this: that I thought before I met him that there was anybody in the world I most wanted to be. It was Orson Welles. 
And then after meeting him, I didn't feel that way. Because what we were dealing with was a lot was films he wanted to make and couldn't make. And so it seemed like it was I got the feeling that it was very difficult to be Orson Welles. He was nice. And also, I think he was being very honest. But, well, it was funny. He was very self-absorbed, but he was aware of the fact that he was self-absorbed and tried to compensate for it. Like, it was very clear when I, I let drop at some point about, you know, that I grew up in the movie business and my family were exhibitor. He didn't have the slightest bit of interest in that. <laughs> and so I had quickly changed the subject. Right. So, you know, when I read all the guys that have done so much work on Wells, I just still, it just seems so frustrating, especially in those latter days where just nobody wants to pony up the money for him. I mean, and, I'm, you know, people that had pocket change that could just say, yeah, here, here's some, here's some dough. Why did that never happen? Um, well, I think it was there were different reasons. Part of it had to do with the fact that he would freak people out in one way or another, partly because he was very bad with middle management. You know, he was great with, you know, he, he was friends with the studio heads, but when it came to dealing with other people, I think was could be very disdainful and insulting. And I think that that's probably what led to his problems on Touch of Evil, for example. I suspect. I'm just guessing. I don't actually know, but I think it's sort of like my sense of him comes not just from him, but from people who were close to him. Because, you know, I'm friends with his, actually one of his main collaborators, Oya Kodar, who was his mistress for the last 20 odd years of his life. Speaking of which, did, did, uh, what's your personal, did you, uh, or do you, I mean, unless you don't want to say, but uh, the, the, the final, uh, the, the other side of the wind, were you and Oya? Which you were consulted it? on. Yeah, were you guys happy with that? Well, yeah, we were, I mean, we were both consulted on it. Oya was, she fought for so many years to trying to get it made, and I think it's a very sensitive matter for her. But I was one of the two consultants. Joe McBride was the other. But my function was largely to try to represent her point of view as much as I understood it. And I think she trusted me to be a kind of a representative to a certain extent. I've written about my whole, you know, feelings about, because, you know, there were certain things as a consultant that I didn't succeed in convincing the others to, you know, suggestions that they didn't follow. Uh, but I've written about it in my most recent book, actually. It's called The Other Side of the Argument. It's also on my website, a, a, a lengthy piece about okay, you know, the other out. side of the yeah, argument. Um, well, I was just thinking, because Ted and I watched the, the other do uh, make it behind the scenes documentary on there. And it said there was like a um, three-hour assembly, four-hour assembly. And as an editor, I know that like getting an assembly down to running time is the art of editing in itself. It just seems like if Wells isn't there, that like there's got to be a, an exactitude about it. That's that's hard to gain. Well, you know, I don't think there's a problem about the running time of the film, at least for me. I have problems or issues with the sound editing, which I think are, you know, was edited like a Hollywood movie, and it's a, it's an anti-Hollywood movie. Do you have some examples? Because I remember when I saw it in a the theater. I was able to see it in a the theater. And I remember thinking that it was interesting to see Wells with modern sound ADR. But like you said, that's an interesting perspective, anti-Hollywood movie. Well, I do think that, for example, there was a sequence, the sequence of the gay baiting with the school teacher. I actually thought was much more powerful when the when I originally saw it, where it didn't have any music in the background. And I thought putting the music in the background was a distraction and it softened it and I thought it was much more intimidating. It's the scene that's seen properly, it really makes you squirm 
it's a very uncomfortable scene. You don't know which side, whose side you're on. You know, it's like you feel very embarrassed for both of the characters. And anyway, it just seemed crazy to have this sort of tinkling piano music in another room, you know? So I tried to get them to cut it out, and they said it didn't work. Now, why is it doesn't work? Because they're thinking of continuity cutting with sound, you know, which is totally contrary to the way the Wells thought about sound. His, his use of sound in a lot of his late works is alienating one, even spatially, from certain things. It's not about that type of, you know, Hollywood continuity. But, you know, like all the people who worked on the editing, and of course that was part of the problem. It was edited by a committee, not by one person. It was Bob Murkowski who was the editor, right? Yeah, well, he was, I, you know, I thought he had the right impulses. And I spent, an, you know, I spent a whole afternoon with Joe McBride talking to him about different things. But but the point is that there were also, there was Bogdanovich, there was Frank Marshall, who's nothing if not a Hollywood person. And and so between him and Peter Bogdanovich and John Riesma, who was the only person without a Hollywood background who was who worked on that, you know, who was the, actually the real producer. But the point is he was just one among several voices. So Oya really was sort of like only, she was able to make, to get, to alert them to certain things that they'd been left out of the rough cut, you know, that they were able to bring back in. But she's actually, hasn't even seen the final film. I think it's too hard for her to deal with it. Interesting. No, it makes sense. Um, I did want to ask you about your involvement with uh, This Is Orson Welles. The... What, yes. It seems like Bogdanovich was trying to make his own Hitchcock Truffaut. Was that an original aim, or was that... Your face says no on that. Well, it's a complicated thing, because first of all, the reason why I was the editor of it was because Oya asked me to. Oya was the one who got the rights to the book. Wells willed them to her. And so I was left alone to do it as I wanted to until the final editing on the book, in which there were some political correctness cuts that Peter Bogdanovich insisted on, which I disagreed with, but he was able to have the final word. And even the editor at HarperCollins was on my side and thought they should be kept, but he didn't want to offend, uh, I don't know, John Wayne's relatives, you know, or or he didn't, he, didn't, he didn't want to allow Wells to use the word Negro in 1969, mm. you know, or he didn't want to, you know, and he said Wells himself, if he were alive, would have made these changes, and maybe so, but I thought it would have been much better if it, they'd kept the original, you know. He called uh, Joseph von Sternberg the king and queen of camp, <laughs> and Peter wouldn't permit that or calling John Wayne a fascist, you know, or saying something that was critical of Israel. But anyway, these were fairly minor. For the most part, I was given. The main problem I had was that I wanted the book to be longer. I had to cut the manuscript. Wow. And the main thing that was cut, which I objected to the most, was the, the Touch of Evil memo. Oh, wow, yeah. It got, on the second edition, when it came out in paperback, I finally was able to persuade them to publish, at that point, not even the whole memo, but two-thirds of it, which was all I had access to at that point. Later, I was able to lead Universal to where the complete memo was, but they wouldn't allow me. <laughs> this is how stupid the studios are. They wouldn't allow me to read the whole memo until I signed an agreement swearing that I wouldn't reveal the existence of this memo to anyone, completely ignoring the fact that I had already published two-thirds of the memo in English and French. 
I, w- I was confused because I think my version has the memo and it also has the um, Magnificent Ambersons continuity in it. Am I misremembering yeah, this? Yeah, they kept that. They, but but the original edition cut the uh, Touch of Evil memo and then it got restored in the paperback edition that came out. And it's on like every Blu-ray of the copy of the movie right now, the full memo. But actually, even though the, that version is not as complete as what you can get on the uh, three-disc set, which has the complete memo included on it. Mm. And I'll tell you something funny. It's again, it's just telling you about studio thinking. They hired me to write the introduction to the memo, and they said that I had to use the term restoration. And I said, but it's not a restoration. And they said, well, yeah, but you have to use the term restoration. So I said, what about if I put the term in quotation marks? Said, oh, no problem. <laughs> so, so the term restoration is, it had to be there, even though it's not a restoration. What, so, what term did they object to? I objected to restoration because it's not a restoration. Restoration is bringing something back to the way it was. And what th- were you what were you trying to write it as initially right? that they had you replace it as with restoration? What term were you initially trying to use that they objected to? Well, I didn't have another obje- term. I think it was, but it was it wasn't that they objected to my term. That they also would uh, uh, they also I think wanted to use the term sometimes as director's cut, which of course is ridiculous with touch because he never had directors like a touch of evil but yeah i mean these are sales terms they don't even think about whether they're you know it's like the way our president thinks about (laughs) it's it's not about what it's about whether you sell things it's not about whether it's true or false you know they don't they're not concerned with that it's just about whether you get people's attention and get them to shell out money that's all kind of kind of uh, leads into uh making your your canon as opposed to the the canons that the AFI and everybody else wants to shove down us. And then you came up with your response, which was pretty fascinating. I did want to mention, so being the youngest here, obviously, I, I first came across you in high school with Movie Wars, which I think is kind of one is one of your more popular books. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it is my most popular book. And oddly enough, it was a book that had, because it was a small publisher, had no advertising budget at all. Like they didn't place any ads. You know, the book had a publicist, and I never even met her. (laughs) But nonetheless, this book received over 100 reviews. It was a runaway popular success. What what appealed to someone like me would have been, I just remember certain part of the thesis being in a small town. The thing that, the idea that the studios were controlling which movies we got to see at the time was, I was really angry at at the time. And... It was, it was funny, leading to this interview, I reread your Small Soldiers piece, which I hadn't read in years. And it was funny because my I worked in a movie theater in my teen years, too. And I remember working when Small Soldiers came out and reading your piece well after Small Soldiers had left the theater. Yeah. Well, it was, you know, the, the piece I wrote on my sort of 100 favorite American films was the most popular piece I ever published in the Chicago Reader. And, of course, people are very favorable towards lists now because I think they have so much to choose from. So I think it's that had something to do with the popularity of both that piece and the book as a whole. And you've done these lists. Are you still fine with lists? Do you like? Do you, do you mind that? Because I know some old-school critics and film uh, fans think, oh, you know, they, they can't stand them. You... No, I think they're very, they're very useful. Okay. And so, no, I still believe in them. And, I, you know, when I was first getting interested in film, the first film magazine I ever bought was Sight and Sound. It was in 1961, I think. 
or 62, and it had the um, poll that they do every 10 years of critics picking their 10 favorite films. And I use that as my guide for the films I wanted to see, you know, various critics lists, you know, I use that as a kind of guide to teaching myself about the art of films. So from the very beginning, I it was a very important learning tool for me. So what do you think about uh, keeping with new things that are happening? What do you think about streaming versus, you know, hard copies? I, I'm an old school hoarder. I love, I have, you know, just tons and tons and well, I'm good. I'm, I don't even have internet at my home. I'm a chain's house with the internet, but uh, I just love, you know, getting the new Criterion or getting the stuff or seeing your column and ordering stuff. Uh, I streaming, I just just don't see it's for me. What do you What do you think about the future of that? I don't. I don't have any. Pro I don't have any problem with it. But it's sort of like you know. Sometimes, obviously, certain films, if you don't see them on a big screen. They suffer, you have problems with them. I just finished writing an article for the Viennale, this this wonderful film festival in Vienna, about Kelly Reicher. And, you know, I did see Poor Cow for the first time on a big screen. I was lucky enough because, you know, just before the pandemic, I got to see it. But when I had to see it again to write my article, you know, I had to see it on streaming. And, you know, there's a lot of scenes, in, in fact, in all of her films that are sort of, you know, filmed in the darkness, in dark and it's very hard to make out details and to tell what's going on if you're just looking at them on your laptop, which is how I was seeing it. So the film suffered for me because I couldn't see it on a big screen. Or at least, I, I don't know you could say it suffered. I suffered because I couldn't follow a lot of details. The problem I have with any kind of... I've been trying to uh, read Paul Schrader's Transcendental Cinema book right now. And one of the problems I have with slow cinema in general at home is the ability to pause. I need someone to control the projector and not let me be able to pause otherwise the impulse is going to be there especially when something gets uncomfortable or i have any excuse to go to the bathroom or snack or something i don't know i do miss sort of theatrical screenings in certain ways but at the same time i love the idea of being able to possess a film the way you possess a book and you can go back to favorite passages and things like that so that for me makes up for the some of the other losses some of the times no that makes sense i mean I, I, it's funny because I was, I, I was going through a bunch of uh, your books today and um, I found a passage you wrote, I want to say it's the beginning of M Movies as Politics. You wrote something about the apocalyptic end of cinema and everyone and your friends are talking about this. And this book came out in 95 and you're like, this, this came from the Rotten Damn Film Festival in 1985. Then in Goodbye Cinema, Hello Cinephilia, there was a passage in there that I was reading and I wasn't dating, but it just sounds like it could have been written yesterday about this, the, the art of buying a ticket and going to see a movie with a crowd of people who also bought a ticket is not what the majority of people are dealing with anymore. But at the same time, this, this, this reoccurs throughout a lot of your writing. I'm totally, I totally agree with you. Like we're still in a better area where we have access to all these movies that have been lost for over a century. Well, I think that's also through the whole history of cinema. It's always been in a state of evolution. It's never stayed the same. I mean, you know, there was first there was silent films followed by talkies. There was black and white followed by color. There was Academy ratio succeeded by different widescreen formats. I mean, the point is, is it's all been changed. It's been a series of changes. And seeing it on a TV screen is obviously makes a lot of changes. And some of the changes have been harmful, but it's very hard to sort of posit, you know, like one point of film history when everything was perfect and not changing. It's always been changing in certain ways. It's, it's a point I'm trying to make, really. 
I did want to ask, what led to uh, leaving the Chicago Reader? Well, I'd been there for 20 years. I think I have to admit that part of it had to do with the fact that when I started at the Chicago Reader, I had literally unlimited length and a certain type of actually freedom that I don't think anybody else writing about film had because in other words I was able to write about films six months after they opened if they were still playing in Chicago but by the time I left I didn't have unlimited length it was restricted in terms of length I had to write about films when they opened it was like all these things in other words it became like everybody else you know and I also didn't like the way the reader was changing they fired all their political writers, which I thought was crazy. It's sort of like what the reader should have stuck to was whatever it did best and, and other papers didn't do. Instead, they decided to become like mainstream. In other words, there used to be a feature, maybe they still have it, it says what the reader is reading and, you know, they talk about. At a certain point, everything the reader was reading was mainstream. It wasn't alternative press at all. So I just thought, you know, if the reader is competing with Time Magazine, they're going to lose because Time Magazine has more means. So what's the point of competing with Time Magazine? That makes sense. The whole point of an alternative press is do things that the mainstream press isn't doing, which I was doing. And you see, I think there's a change, another change the reader went through, which I didn't feel great about, was that it went from being a writer's newspaper to being an editor's newspaper. And that literally happened. I mean, you know, at a certain point I was... My office was on the same floor as the editors, and then I was moved upstairs because they wanted to have all the editors together, and they wouldn't allow me to edit other people's copy, which, I, you know, I would have liked to have been able to be an editor, too. Mm. But that was secondary. It was, it was the fact that I was, that basically they took the position that any text that I turned in would have to be edited, and that it would always be improved. And I was saying that's very alienating to writers because, you know, you try if you really work hard on something, you, you, you get to the point where you think this can't be improved. This is as good as it can get. But they're but if they feel committed to always changing something, it's demoralizing to writers to take that position. Well, you definitely saw the tea leaves in regards to weeklies. But I, I was in a position Ted had to disabuse me of this, but I. When you when you left the reader, I thought you were retired from film criticism altogether. I haven't I haven't read a lot of the pieces you've written in the last few years on your website until more recently. Well, no, I've been writing just as much in a lot of ways. And and the thing that I'm really lucky, I was really fortunate about is because of my website, I have control over all the pieces, even though they're legally owned by the reader. If I don't like the way I was edited on a particular piece, I could go back to, if I still have a copy of the, my original version, hmm. I can run that piece on my website, which is really great, because that was something the, uh, the, the people who gave me the website gave me that power, which is great. But I think in any case that I, I basically wanted to have the freedom to choose what I was doing. I think part of the trouble when you, when you review everything that comes along, and you have to review everything, or, you know, is that most of the films I was seeing were films I wouldn't have chosen to see on my own. You know, I was, it was alien, it became alienated labor, and it was alienated labor for much of the time. People ask me sometimes if I've seen such and such a film. I don't even remember until I, unless I look it up on my website, and then sometimes I read my own review, and I still can't remember the film. <laughs> the point of what's alienating about being a regular reviewer is that, you have to sort of like make everything seem important the week it comes out, but then you're supposed to forget about it a week later, you know? 
to make room for the next film that's supposed to be important. And so that there's a there's a kind of false position you have to assume in doing that. So I think that it's back to being a freelancer gives me the freedom to choose my subjects and you know. This, this kind of ties into this quote I just you just did a recent interview uh, where you said uh, if you're independent of the mainstream, you can brand yourself. But if you're in the mainstream, yes. it's the mainstream that brands you. Absolutely. That's why I'm not happy with the piece I wrote about Bergman for the New York Times, you know, which, um, you know, write that headline. Oh, I did not. And I hated that headline, you know. But in fact, I had to rewrite the piece three times, you know, before the editor accepted it. You know, I wanted to write something that was more favorable to to Bergman that that dealt with him as a theater director, for example. You know, so I it wasn't. It was their piece. It wasn't my piece. You know, that's the trouble. If you write a piece for the, at least if I wrote a piece for the New York Times, it's not my piece. It's their piece. And the same thing would be happen if I were writing probably for the New Yorker, or for Time Magazine, or wherever. So I'd rather be in a position where I can brand myself, which I was able to do for the most of the time I was at the Reader, but not to the same extent. You know, like in the last two or three years. Do you, is there any critics right now you're reading that you're liking? That I mean, you mentioned earlier the community of people on the internet that know the twenty-year-olds who know more about film. Than yeah. You have. Is there anyone interesting you're reading right now? I mean, I haven't been keeping up with Adrian Martin so much, but I, I actually, I'm trying to think of people who, I, well, certainly Jim Nairmore is somebody I read everything by and and like an awful lot by. I haven't been able to keep. It's been harder to keep up with Chris Fujiwara, but I like his pieces a lot. There are certain critics in French that I've, you know, that I like reading. There's a young woman who I've, I've only read two or three pieces by her, but they really impressed me a lot. Muriel Joubert. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I mean, last I heard she was in her 20s, but I don't know if she still is. You know, that was a while ago. Um, well, I like reading Boardwell sometimes. I don't always agree with him, but I do like some of the things he writes. And, well... My friend Janet Bergstrom, who's recently retired full professor at UCLA, who is to me like the best American film historian now, she has just found out about, a researched a project that F.W. Murnau had when he originally signed a deal with, with Fox to come to the States to, you know, and he made Sunrise. Before, by doing Sunrise, he wanted to make a film that was called Frozen Justice to be filmed and set in Alaska. Wow. And so she I just read an essay by her about this, which is fascinating. Would this um, would this have like combined the technique that he ended up putting into Sunrise? Who knows? Who <laughs> knows? Because it never got it never got far enough. It might have been quite different, you know? In fact it would have had to have been different if he was gonna shoot some of it on location in Alaska. But it, it actually sounds like it has more in common with taboo actually because he was partly concerned with native people, you know, like Eskimos and the difference between civilization and aboriginals and so on. You know, so it was, I think it would have been closer to something like taboo, probably. Ted, you had those series of quotes you had written down. Do you want to, do we want to finish off? He he's has some favorite quotes he pulled out of you. I just wonder. Well, that was just these recent ones that like. We want, they were, I found them pretty interesting. Yeah, this, do you that, mind? The interview you did with, uh, uh, David uh, Walsh on the World Socialist website. Yes. Yeah, there were some good quotes here where you like uh, that really stuck out to me. Like, cinema is concerned with the world and not with an alternative to it. I thought that was an interesting statement. 
because we 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 tend to think it seems like most a lot of fandom today film fans that that movies are their alternative they don't really see that as uh being the escape from reality idea if i have a slogan it's if in dreams begin responsibilities (laughs) which is a line from william butler yates okay yes and then he said um uh, cinema belongs to the world including us film is important because it addresses the way we live and I, and I've also I've always been impressed with you you've always uh, a big champion of uh, world cinemas and third world that uh, things that we tend to just you know whether where we're living or we just tend to gloss over and, or the anti-american bias and like just a pro-american bias and film going in the culture and in the film criticism well, I have to say that I'm an American, and as being an American, I'm a provincial in a lot of ways, even though I've, you know, traveled a lot and lived in other, you lived in Europe and so on. I still feel I'm very provincial. And one thing that's provincial about me is that I learn about other countries through seeing movies made there, you know, which is not necessarily the best way of learning about other countries. But even so, because it is my main method, it seems to me that it becomes very valuable. And whereas in the 60s, the excitement of seeing Godard films in the 60s was that they would be like global newspapers. You would go to <laughs> Godard film to find out what's happening in the world. Whereas it seemed to me that in the 90s, you would go to Abbas Kurastami to find out what was going on in the world. And the fact that the, his films were not set in the big cities was significant because what's happening in the world is not necessarily happening in the big cities. It's like the the same big companies are doing the same things everywhere. So what's happening in the middle of nowhere and the wind will carry us is what's happening all over the world mm-hmm. in terms of the difference between, you know, the media person and the locals. You know, it just seems to me that, that there's a lot we can learn from film apart from, you know, I think that there's a part of it has to do with the anti-intellectualism of American life. And it's also the anti-art position, because I've often, maybe this is being excessive, but it sometimes seems to me that America may be the only country in the world that actually hates art. I mean, almost every country in the world gives money to the arts, whereas it seems to me people really don't like the idea of the government giving, unless they give money to, you know, it's often said that America gives more money to military marching bands than to all the other art forms yeah. combined. Well, it seems like, at the very least, America likes the commercial form of art that they can use in the kind of Aldous Huxley way at the at the various way. But, like, I don't know. It, it's the federal government is not going... The NEA is not paying for artists anymore, and it's definitely not paying for artists that cannot make money for corporations. Well, right, but I think the funny thing is I don't think anybody knows what the audience wants. Because all we know about what the audience wants is what the industry tells us. And they don't know either. So it's like, you know, they're full of self-fulfilling prophecies. That, I mean, that's also both in, that's a good point to make both in, like, the filmmaking gatekeepers and in criticism. One of the things I've always liked about your writing is you always are pushing against groupthink. Yeah. Well, at least I try to. But, But, I mean, I have... You know, I have my own forms of group fake, too. I mean, you know, I'm influenced by friends and people I read and so on, too. It's just a different group. And also, I define my group internationally rather than locally. Because that's the other thing that I think is sort of like something I feel that I'm a beneficiary of. The thing that I, that, that I, that I feel lucky about having my website, because it means that 
my readership is international, even though it's limited by people who read English, obviously. But Well, that, you know, that kind of goes, I love, I love this quote here, too. This is one of your quotes. I argue strongly that the critic should not have the first or the last word. And, yeah. And I just, you know, to me, that has always been something I've always uh, felt strongly about without really thinking about it much. A lot of a lot of my friends might say, "Oh, Ted, you're you're reading too much reviews and not making up your own mind." But sometimes I need a little help. I need a little prompting to help, you know, figure out what I'm thinking about. And uh, so I, you will go to a review and check it out after I see it. That is a conversation. Well, you know, I always thought that Godard had it right when he actually thought that for him, cinema was not only seeing films but also reading about films and writing about films. In other words, he saw it as all as part of the same thing. So as even though most of my colleagues will say that they won't read a review of a film until after they've seen it made up their own mind, I've never had this bias. I sometimes read for, you know, reviews before I see films. And to me it's just part of the discussion, you know, it's like the discussion that goes on between films and between films and other films, between films and reviews, between and so on. I don't believe that films should necessarily be cut off from the world, as I guess, which is to, to, to link it to an, an earlier argument, you know, that you were citing. And one way of connecting it to the world is connecting it to, you know, the discourse we have about other things. I think that's a good spot to end on. So, Jonathan Rosenbaum, I wanted to thank you for being on the podcast. Yes, well, thank you so much. It's, you were one of our heroes, and uh, really appreciate you taking the time. To do this. Well, no, thank you. Thank you.